Thank you, Ashley. Good morning, church, again. Your eyes do not deceive you. I am not Brother Jeff. I was scheduled to preach last week, and ice and snow hit, and Jeff was scheduled to preach today, and what appears to be the flu hit his household. So, uh, praise the Lord, I had a sermon ready. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> um, it is good to be here, always good to be here. We're going to look at Psalm 2 this morning. You can go ahead and turn in your, your scriptures to Psalm 2. And you'll notice that this, if, if the title's up here, if it shows up, um, it is indeed a Christmas sermon, but, but more specifically, it's, in, it's a sermon about the incarnation, um, roughly. And, and what I mean by that is we want to look at Psalm 2 today through the lens, the necessary and timely lens of the incarnation, and, and think about what it is that we celebrate to look at really the full extent of what it is that we celebrate at this time of year. To sort of guard us from the danger of keeping Christ in the cradling arms of Mary and, and not take us in our hearts to the feet of the dying Savior. And then rejoice in his resurrection and reign, which we will see in this psalm. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. If, if you would... Um, Go ahead and stand as we, as we read God's word this morning. I know it's kind of up, down, up, down, but just in honor of the reading of the word of the Lord this morning, stand and we'll look at Psalm 2. And this is what David writes for us. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst apart their bonds and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. So what this psalm does for us, if we, if we look at it through the lens of the incarnation, think what... Who is this king? Why is it good news that he has come? Because there's some, some strong language in this psalm that we'll look at. But when we look at it through the lens of the incarnation, what it does is it sets up for us the necessity, the effect, and the call of the incarnation. What comes along with it. And we'll find as we read through this that there are four voices in this psalm. That will correspond with the four points we're going to look at today. And really, this originally, as, as I was set to, to come last week and preach this, was more devotional in nature, a little shorter. And you guys will probably rejoice in that because it's still probably going to be a little shorter for me. Um, but as we look at this, we find that there are four voices. And the, the first voice we hear will be the rebellious people, which should shock us. Because the question is asked that is supposed to be absurd and to shock us. Then the second voice we will hear is Yahweh himself. Then we will hear his Messiah, his warrior king speak. And then King David himself will speak directly to the reader. 
So look at verses 1 through 3, and what I want to look at here is the necessity, and I'll try to since there's no outline this morning, just the title, no outline, I'll try to repeat these points for you. The first one is this, the necessity of the king. What necessitates the coming of this one who will rule the nations? So what we see here is the absurdity of man's self-determination to rule himself, to act as sovereign of his own realm. So what we see here is, is that mindset stretched to its logical end. What does man look like when he absolutely refuses to bow the knee to one who has absolute authority over him, who has created him and set him in place to live according to a certain standard? What does that look like? And King, Davis write, King David writes for us here and asks this question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Kings and rulers are setting themselves against the Lord and his anointed. That's an insane picture. So the question in verse 1 is meant to sound absurd to us. It's meant to sound laughable because of the reality that will be disclosed to us in verses 4 through 6. So it is supposed to give us a shock. But it's those that are identified in these verses that are so important because this psalm will bring us full circle from the absurdity of the rebellion we find in verse one, verses 1 and 2 to the grace of the warning that is given at the very end of the psalm. So we have kings of the earth and rulers. So they don't like the Lord's rule, nor will they sit at the feet of the one he has anointed to institute it. But also, it's easy for us to say, well, those are just the bigger people in power who have say in big things that happen, right? No. Because in verse one, we have the mention of nations and peoples. I mean, this is from stem to stern. So the question is not, why do some people do this? But more, why is mankind like this? Why do we rage against God himself and his anointed? Why do we press back on anyone that would have authority over us and ask us to live a certain way? We have this absurd obsession of being our own sovereign and ruling our own realm. So there's a voice we hear here, and it's, it is the rebellious people. This is what it sounds like when they have that mindset, when we have that mindset. It says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, in the immediate context, and, and we have to step back here too, speaking of the entire psalm, its immediate context is in the reign of King David, okay? That's its historical and immediate context. Its full and ultimate context and fulfillment is in the reign of Christ. This is a messianic psalm. And David, we get, we get the sense as we read through this that David understands in some way he is writing far beyond himself about his greater son, the one promised from Genesis 3.15, and then in Genesis 12, and then 2 Samuel 7. He's writing about someone far beyond him who will rule perfectly and eternally. But as we look at verse 3, back to the text, also we see that in its immediate context, when it says their bonds and their cords, that it is in reference to Yahweh and his Messiah King. But I would also argue that there is a hatred 
and a pushback against those who gladly and joyfully sit under the rule of this Messiah. And that would be you and I. And we can see this in the world even today, that there is pushback and hatred toward an exercise of righteousness, having any standard of right and wrong. That's why what comes next in this psalm is so gloriously good for us and good news. It's amazing when we see it because this, these words rage and plotting and bursting apart and casting off, that's violent language. That is an absolute determination to not live under the rule of God himself and his anointed, his Messiah. But watch what, so that's, that's what necessitates the coming of this king. So watch what happens next in verses 4 through 6. Here's the certainty, because the next voice we hear in this psalm is God himself. Look at verse 4. After all that being said, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. If you think about it, the raging of man is no more than a comedy skit to God. And the word combination here expresses the absurdity of their perspective in the eyes of Yahweh himself. So this, this is akin to an ant raging against the boot that can crush it. It's silly. And we're meant to sense that. Think about some of the times we have this sort of perspective in Scripture. So this transition is very good news for us. But think about what Job learned. In, at the end of the book of Job, in Job 42, after all he had been through... He said this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. We do not direct God's actions by any perspective or raging that we may enter into. But he is sovereign. And that's why he's able to, to look at and consider the raging of the nations and the plotting of mankind and laugh and hold in derision. But note the descriptors here for this. You know, it's laughter and derision, but, but then it says in verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So all of a sudden, it gets very serious. That's what's at stake here. So... What's amazing is that these two things come about and are set in place for us and find their shape and context in the coronation of his king. Because what does he say? What, what are the words that express wrath? What are the words that are drenched in fury? Simply this. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's bad news for those who press back against the reign and the rule of God. But I want you to understand, beloved, that is gloriously good news for us. The fact that our king, I mean, th think about the context we live in now. And I don't recommend you watch the news, and I tell myself almost every day, I've got to stop watching the news because it just makes me angry. And I, and I get that they're only reporting the worst of things. I, I get that. But it doesn't take long to understand and see that this world is a wretched, broken mess. But the promise of Scripture is that this king 
will set all things right. This king will make it new in the sense that it will be returned to its intended glory and function. And at the head of that restoration, which we'll see in just a moment, is his people. It's not just about the world system, but about the people who live under the reign of this king. That's what's amazing about this. So this is a declaration of the reign of the righteous king who has come. And, you know, and in the context of this time of year, again, it, it's, it's the reign of this one who was born into abject, stinking poverty. Who's not born the way kings are born, but has been set on the throne and rules and reigns. And his is the next voice we hear in this psalm. So we've got the necessity of the king. We see it. We've gotten the certainty of the king because God has decreed it. And now we see in verses 7 through 9 the rule of this king. Look at this. So in verse 7 it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Now so all of a sudden we are to understand that this is the anointed one speaking. This is the Messiah. So Verse 7, it's a, it's a reminder of the steadfast purpose of God from eternity past. He says, you are my son. This, this goes beyond any earthly king to David's greater son. This is how the author of Hebrews understands this. In Hebrews 1, when talking about the superiority of Christ over angels, he said, to which one of them has he ever said? And he quotes this psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that phrase, today I have begotten you, is not about creation. It's not about being born. It's about being installed as king, coronated to sit on the throne. Through his absolute sinless life, atoning death, glorious resurrection, he is our reigning king. He sits on the throne. In the verse 8, now this king will graciously reveal to us the fabric of his rule and tell us how all this is going to be set right. If this, is, if this picture is as bad as it looks like, and we can see that it is, how will this king set it right? Beloved, this, this is what I want you to grasp today from this psalm. What we see here, there's a danger in it just sliding by us and us not catching it if we're not careful. So in verse 8, it says, Ask of me. And I will make the nations your, now catch these words, your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession. So what is he saying there? So these raging nations, these plotting people, are the possession and heritage of this reigning king. They belong to him, and I think this implies the work of redemption. Because the Bible refers to God redeeming people for his own possession. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.9, alluding to Exodus 19.5, speaks of the church being a people for God's own possession. When God called Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to himself to be his own people, a people for his possession. And that's what Peter's referring to when he refers to, church, as to the church as that. So this is not about, you know, this, this people is a people for your own possession. This is your heritage. It's broken, but it's the thought that counts, right? 
No. This will be his possession and heritage because it will be gloriously restored. But there's a flip side to that coin, isn't there? Because this isn't a universal restoration and redemption. Look at what he says next. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I think this very clearly implies judgment. So there is a redeeming arm of this king who graciously calls the people to himself for his own possession, his own heritage, but he will judge the raging nations with a rod of iron. This baby born in a feeding trough will crush the nations who refuse to bow to him, who carry on like we see in verses 1 and 2. He will set it right. Revelation 19.11, and I love this scene. (laughs) I'm not sadistic. I don't mean it in the sense that I love to watch judgment take place. It's not what I mean. I love the glory that it shows of our reigning king. Listen to what it says. Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is our king. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. This, this is Christ our king. Whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Hail, hail the word made flesh. The babe, the son of Mary. That baby grows up. And he reigns. He rules graciously for us. That is the rule of the king, to redeem and to judge. Point is, he will set it all right. And watch this. Because that's the reality. Because that's what is happening. Look at verses 10 through 12. So we've had the necessity of the king. The certainty of the king. The rule of this gracious king, but also the grace of the king in verses 10 through 12. So the next voice we hear in this psalm, we've heard the rebellious people. We've heard the voice of Yahweh. We've heard the Messiah king, Jesus himself, speaking what he has heard from God the Father. And now we have David sort of breaking the literary fourth wall. He sort of turns and looks us in the eye. And he says this. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here now we close the circle because 
In verse 1, it was the kings and the rulers. In verse 10, it's the kings and the rulers. Those who have raged and plotted, David turns and says this, Be wise. Be warned. You've seen the reign. God has certainly installed his king, and you have seen the fabric of his reign. So be wise. Be careful. Be warned. Grace is extended. And that's what we sometimes don't catch in Scripture. When red-hot, maybe white-hot warnings come in Scripture, they are grace. Warning is always grace. Because what's the point of warning? To escape the consequence of what you're ignoring. So, verses 11 through 12, this is worship language. When he says these things, when he calls them to serve the Lord with fear... The Hebrew word there, abad, is, is worship. It's service in the sense of worshiping God. That's why the New American Standard translates it as worship the Lord with fear. And then re- rejoice with trembling. So this, this becomes a joy, not a hatred, not a desire to burst away from, but to rejoice in. And then kiss the sun. This is fundamental to worship in an ancient Near Eastern culture. This idea of kissing toward. Because it's adoration. If part of our worship is not adoration of our king, we're, we're, we're skirting something. We're missing something at the heart level. So, it's a gracious invitation to worship, rejoice, and adore this king. So rather than raging, we are to worship with reverence. So, so the, the shouting and, and raging against the enemy is graciously transformed into singing to a glorious superior. So rather than taking our stand against him and his Messiah, we are to rejoice with trembling. Not defiance to his rule, but deference to his good providence. Knowing that he knows and does all things well. And then rather than tearing off the fetters or bursting apart the bonds and casting away the cords which we feel are oppressing us or keeping us from something, we're to kiss the sun in loving, joyful submission. So what's at stake? And he tells us very clearly. He says, lest he be angry and you what? Perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. David is warning that the wrath of this king, and it's very clear that he's not referring to himself. This sense of perishing in an ultimate sense because of the, the wrath that is easily kindled is not coming from King David. He's speaking of his greater son. But notice what he says, because what's at stake is, is either perishing or refuge. Look at that last phrase. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, who find their shelter in that high tower and run in and find safety and security, where they're free to serve and rejoice and kiss the sun and worship him by his grace. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, beloved, this morning I have this This one question for you as we wrap up just some meditations on Psalm 2. And I told you it'd be shorter. But it's simply this. 
because everybody does this, you have to be honest with yourself to identify where do you take refuge? Where is your refuge? Maybe better asked, who is your refuge? Because I would argue that everybody takes refuge in someone. There's someone they run to, someone that they confide in, someone that they feel safe with. And that's not a bad thing. We can take a certain respite and refuge in those we love. But ultimately, I'm talking big picture, where do you take refuge? There's a, there's a hymn slash song that I love. It says, I know my days are in your hands, though I draw near to dust. You are the God in whom I trust. You are my refuge. And so I would just ask you this morning, if you have not found refuge in Christ the King, flee to him. His reign is good and gracious. He will redeem, but he will judge. And David is graciously telling us, be wise. Pay attention. Be careful. Look at this king and respond accordingly. And it's good this morning that we can come and, and even think about and celebrate this, this thought of refuge as we come to the Lord's table this morning. We think about what has been done on our behalf that we could experience such glorious safety and security in our Redeemer. So this morning, if you're here with us, I'm going to step down here so you don't think I'm losing my mind. If you're here with us this morning, and you have come to Christ in repentance and faith, and you are baptized as a picture of that faith, if you're a member in good standing at a like-minded church, we invite you to partake of this meal with us. And why do I say that? Why do we put those sort of conditions out there? Because this is a proclamation of the gospel experienced. This is a family meal in the sense that those who have come to this king for refuge celebrate together visibly, and with taste, what he has done for us. And so we would ask you to consider that. If, if, if you're not a Christian this morning, take time during this observance and examine yourself and do business with Christ the King. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that Jesus is on the throne, ruling and reigning over his people, continuing to redeem a people for his own possession, a, a, an inheritance for himself. Fathers, we come, we want to take just a moment and not approach this table in a wrong manner, but to confess to you things that may need to be confessed, so we could clearly and confidently rejoice in eating this meal together. And Father, I ask that you would bring to this body, to Fisherville Baptist Church, a sense of unity and joy together. Father, deepen our love for one another. 
2022 was a year where we let too many things press into us that challenged us at that level. And Father, I pray we've grown and we would see how important it is to proclaim to the world that we belong to Christ because of our love for one another. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name.